Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Hello, I am very excited to have Steve Kaplan with me, who is such a phenomenal comedy expert. I first came across Steve through his books, The Hidden Tools of Comedy, which is so incredibly practical and useful. And more recently, I've been really digging into the comic hero's journey. So I'm excited to talk to Steve about his work today. But before we dive in, Steve, is there anything else that people should know about you and your work in comedy? I'm a Libra. My favorite color is blue. I like long walk on the <laughs> beach. Uh, so I think I think those are the I've hit the I hit the high notes there. Okay, I like blue too. So okay. we're off it. We're off to a good because start. Because my eyes, you know, Excellent. my eyes brings out the blue in my eyes. So yeah. <laughs> good. So I wasn't expecting fashion advice as well, but that's perfect. That's a great start. Amazing. <laughs> So there's so many things I loved about the book, The Comic Hero's Journey. I find it incredibly useful and practical, as all your work is. And uh, listeners and watchers will have to go and read the book to get their full sense of all those steps. But if you don't mind, I'd love to start by pulling out two of them that I found particularly helpful, just because I think they're really great for thinking about uh, comedy characters. And the two that I pulled out was Connections and Disconnection as being sort of two of the steps in the journey. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind just speaking a little bit to those as you see them being useful to creating comedy characters. Well, I think you got to start with the fact that um, most mistakes in comedy are are caused by people trying to be fun, too funny, funnier than they need to be. Uh, and so there's a lot of effort in, um, you know, uh, bodily uh, bodily jokes, uh, you know, bathroom jokes, and and I think what sometimes what people sometimes forget, and what actually is at the heart of most modern television and streaming comedy. I'm thinking I just I've just watched The Bear, which is amazing. Ted Lasso mm. is is the fact that comedy narrative comedy, not stand up, but narrative comedy depends upon first your protagonist being broken and isolated at the beginning. So I I know that there are exceptions, but if you think about 40 year old virgin, you know, he's, he's literally alone. He's, he's, you know, shut himself off from the world because of past uh, uh, moments where he was embarrassed or humiliated. And so he's kind of given up on, on all that. Groundhog Day, where the Bill Murray character, uh, Phil Connors, thinks he's he's all that and thinks everything's going great. But we in the audience can see he's a jerk. And uh, and even though he might, you know, have have some game with women, he's not going to he's going to be alone for a lot of his life. So so in the beginning, our protagonists are broken in, in Bridesmaids, which which I love. Uh, you know, Kristen Wiig starts off, uh, she's desperate to just sleep over John Hamm's house once, but he kicks her out and she has to climb over the gate and she doesn't realize it. So in the beginning, your protagonist is broken, but they don't realize it. They don't know it. They don't know how broken they are. And as they go through um, the various stages of the comic hero's journey, the, the normal world, and then the next stage is we call WTF 
what the fuck, something weird happens or unexplainable <laughs> happens or impossible or improbable happens. Uh, and then they're desperate to return to the normal world. And when they're not able to return to the normal world, either because they're in a fantasy like Groundhog's Day or because the situation has simply changed and they can't get back to the comfort zone that they that they were existing in, uh, then you have a stage in which in, in most films we call connections, in which your isolated, broken protagonist starts to form a somewhat dysfunctional but alternative family around them. They start to uh, reach out and make friends, and they start to, for, for maybe the first time, they start to really connect with other people, that, you know, connection. So, uh, and, and this happens in the silliest of comedies, the, in the silliest of best of comedies. Um, I'm thinking of Tropic Thunder. In, in Tropic Thunder, uh, Ben Stiller plays a ridiculous action hero. Robert Downey Jr. plays a ridiculous method actor uh, who's so, you know, he's Australian, who's so method that he's, you know, made himself into an African-American to be in this Vietnam War movie. But they are two stars who are, from the beginning, competing with each other, trying to upstage each other. And there's a moment in Tropic Thunder where, for the first time, they're talking to each other. And they're not just, you know, it's not just Robert Downey Jr. kind of getting up zingers at at Ben Stiller. But uh, Ben Stiller says, you know, I, I don't know why my big film, Simple Jack, didn't work. and Robert Downey Jr. kind of goes, really? Well, yeah. And I'm not going to use the word because there, there's a politically incorrect <laughs> word that he uses. But he went full. Look up the movie if you if you want to know the word. Um, and even though it's insulting and funny, uh, it's really for the first time that they've that he's here that they're talking truth to each other, and he's telling him something truthful and valuable. Uh, there's there's the moment Michael Haig calls it the getting naked moment in a rom-com. Mm. And by getting naked, it's not the moment in which protagonists and the object of desire have sex. It's the moment in which they are open with each other, in which they're vulnerable with each other. Um, there's this beautiful moment in Groundhog Day in which he's, you know, he's gone through all the machinations of trying to... Uh, exploit the the benefits of living the same day over and over again where nobody else realizes it. He's gone to bed with all the women in town. It's a small town, so it's possible. He's been there for a lot of a lot of years. He robs the the armored car truck and he's bored with it. And he tries to have a relationship with uh, with Rita, the producer, Andy McDowell. And uh, he gets only so far but then because she's, you know, she's kind of a, you know, a wonderful woman, uh, she's not going to go to bed with him on the first night. And there's this whole wonderful series of slaps. And then he kills himself over and over and over again. And, and until he comes to the point where, because he's going through the five stages of depression, you know, uh, denial, anger, negotiation, and then he's coming to acceptance and he and he just is honest with her. And he says, uh, you know, he, he's trying to prove to her that 
he knows everything because he's lived this day over and over again. And she says, well, you know, what do you know about me? And he says, well, you, you know, you look for more than being a producer. And she says, everybody knows that. And then he says this wonderful thing with this wonderful underscoring, you know, you, you like, uh, the ocean, you know, but not the beach. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's wonderful and it's touching and it's heartfelt. And then they go, there's another, the next scene is he's in her, um, I think it's in his uh, bed and breakfast and she's sleeping. And in a moment stolen from his own life, because he told Harold Ramis about the time in which he had been married and uh, there's, you know, this big wedding and this big to do. And they get finally, you know, the real Bill Murray and his real wife finally get to the place where, where they're going to have to start their honeymoon and they're tired and exhausted. And his wife is asleep. And while she's asleep, he kind of pours his heart out to her because, you know, he's this tough Chicago guy. He doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve, but because she's sleeping, he tells her everything in his heart that he doesn't want to tell her or can't tell her while he's awake. And Harold Ramis took that and put that in the movie. And there's this beautiful moment in which she's sleeping and he just tells her, you know, I don't deserve somebody like you, but if I ever could, I, you know, I'd spend the rest of my life deserving you. And it's, it's such a, a, a beautiful moment where you're connected. He's connected, you're connected, because I think the fault with a lot of comedies is that they don't realize that, First, we have to care. We don't care. It's all noise. It's just, it's just noise. Um, uh, C.F., uh, the Farrelly's brother, the uh, remake of the Three Stooges, in which it it's literally all noise, and it's funny or it's not funny, but but you don't care. It's the hardest thing to do is to create a comedy in which you don't care about anybody. It's possible. Airplane. But even in the airplane, you kind of feel for that that pilot. Is <laughs> kind of um, there's very few comedies in which it's just a series of sketches or a series of bits that you do not care about anybody. The Pythons uh, are are known as a great sketch comedy group. But when they did their first film, their first film was a series. Uh, of sketches from their TV show uh, cut together and and uh, distributed in the United States. And they did a preview of it and the audience laughed hysterically for 45 minutes and then quiet. They completely lost them. And then, and they saw that, so they thought, okay, we're onto something, but it's the wrong edit. So they re-edited uh, the sketches. They put them in a different order, did it for a preview audience. And again, 45 minutes of hysterical laughter and then quiet because you cannot make an audience just laugh and laugh and laugh without hanging on to something, something to think about, something to someone to care about, someone to root for or root against. Uh, and so if you look at their next two films, um, uh, the Holy Grail and uh, The Life of Brian, they put, you know, Graham Chapman, who's this wonderful troubled, brilliant guy, and they make him the, the center of the story, and you care for him, you feel for him. And so especially in the life of Brian, 
you 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 know he's not going to succeed because you know he's not Christ, he's Brian. Um, but you want him to succeed somehow. And so connections is very important. And then disconnections is simply the fact that uh, in, in a narrative, you know, what does what does T.S. Eliot say the center cannot hold? Um, things have to fall apart. Things have to fall apart for you to put them back together again. Now, life doesn't work that way. Sometimes everything falls apart and it never gets put back together. Sometimes somebody uh, who you think should fall apart never falls apart and, and, it, and you know, just horrible, horrible uh, things happen and Rupert Murdoch gets to run the world. Okay. Um, but in, in a narrative, uh, because fiction is the lie that tells the truth, um, a, a narrative wants to show you what happens when the protagonist who's broken in the beginning and is beginning to transform, you give them an opportunity to revert. Um, it, it's what, you know, um, it, it's what you call, uh, what I call uh, uh, mask to mensch. Um, and uh, mensch being a Yiddish word, which means mensch, you know, which means um, a good person, a, a good man. And so, uh, you know, in the beginning, like with Groundhog Day, uh, you know, he's a jerk, but underneath being a jerk, maybe there's a good person there. And, and that, you know, and that's his transformation. And 40-year-old virgin, he's really uh, uh, a 40-year-old adolescent. And he's, he doesn't want to grow up. He's, he's uh, what would happen to Peter Pan if Peter Pan really lived in Van Nuys, California? And uh, near near the end of the film, uh, well, at the disconnection part of the film, in which he's supposed to have finally have sex with um, with Catherine Keener, uh, he uh, they're starting to make out, and they're making out on the bed in which all his t- action figures are being packed, you know, to sell on eBay so he can start his own store. And he says, "No, no, you, we can't. Uh, we have to preserve preserve these packaging. Uh, this hasn't been open. I got this in second grade. Do you know what it's like for a kid in second grade to not open this? And what a beautiful metaphor because that that describes him because he's stuck mm-hmm. <laughs> in second grade and he's never opened himself. And so he says, "You you want me to change? I I can't change that much." Um, uh, I don't want, you know, you want this. I don't want any part of this. And so literally he's put the mask back on. He's become, he's reverting back. And that's what happens in disconnections. In disconnections, the, the bond that started the family that started to form together breaks apart. And then, Mm. and then we want to see what happens. How can they possibly get back together? We want them to get back together. And this is the thing. You, you want your audience to be rooting. You want them to be involved. You want them to be rooting for something um, so, that, uh, so that when it happens, it's, it's an emotional experience. And that's what people forget about comedies. They think, well, emotion, that's for drama, you know, uh, Nazis and, 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 you know, and people being abused in war. But comedy, it's, comedy's fun. No. 
comedy tells the truth about people. And people go through a lot of pain in their lives. And, you know, drama helps. One of the things we say in the book is drama helps us, helps us dream about what we could be, but comedy helps us live with who we are. And so if you have a comedy in which there's no pain, no loss, it's not really life. Um, and that's why the best comedies nowadays are, are really what people would call tragic comedies or, or, or black comedies or, or dramas. Um, uh, but, but they're not dramas in the sense that there's no humor and there's no objectivity towards the, towards the characters. Uh, there's understanding and there's objectivity and there's also knowing, realizing how sometimes these characters are idiots. Um, so, so those are those are you know the the stages of connections, the disconnections, and then there's race to the altar, in which your protagonist you know in, in a romantic comedy, oftentimes your protagonist literally races to the author, altar, uh, and and in most comedies your character does something, takes some action, some positive action to try to attain his or her ultimate goal. Um, so, so, I mean, and this all comes from, uh, it comes from basically teaching people about comedy. And while I was doing these workshops, you know, which was the basis of the first book, the hidden tools of comedy, um, people would say, well, how do we apply this to film? I went, hmm. good point. <laughs> so I, so I thought about it for a long time. And, uh, and so we, we pulled together what I thought were these universal aspects of nar comic narrative that would be useful, but would not, would be a template, but not a formula, not a, um, not a restrictive template. One of the things that we talk about is the fact that, yeah, there's, there's a disconnection in almost every film, but it doesn't have to happen in the same exact spot. You know, mm -hmm. most romantic comedies, they break up two thirds of the way through, you know, just before the third act. Uh, but in Tropic Thunder, the platoon literally breaks apart about 50% of the way through, through the movie. So, so these things happen. They don't necessarily have to happen all in the same, all at the same point, all in the same order. Yeah, that makes total sense and is, is really useful and helpful. And you've given us so many valuable points in that answer about the, the comic hero. Or I know you also have the term them being a non-hero yeah. to uh, kind of really put your finger on what their qualities are like. But I wondered if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit to when people are thinking about the supporting cast, whether, and this may be a different answer for if it's a kind of buddy comedy or if it's an ensemble comedy, but what are some of the um, ways that you help writers do you think about that supporting cast within the context of comedy? Well, one of the things that we talk about is archetypes. Uh, and mm. in the first book, we, we talk about the fact that the Commedia dell'Art was a theater form that was formed out of the... Uh, the Middle Ages, in which there was no literacy, and so these actors took on archetypical characters and played out scenarios with no no scripts. It was totally improvised, and and they were a a troupe that that 
where the character stayed the same, but the situation changes. And I would say, can you think of an art form in which uh, mm-hmm. characters stay the same, but situations change? Maybe, I don't know, say, say on a weekly basis. And that's it. Yeah. So when you're thinking about your your the other characters, everybody is a non-hero in, in a comedy, meaning they're they're flawed, they're they're human, they're not perfect. Um, they don't have to be you know the the biggest idiot, but uh, but you want to make sure that you're not duplicating characters. You don't need seven best friends uh, because are there seven different points of view? What you're looking for is you're looking. Can I can I create separate points of view, separate and distinctive points of view, so that when something happens, there are different points of view towards what happens. And and in a practical sense, uh, let let's think about the the cast of Friends. Uh, so you have the cast of Friends. If something somebody has to say something stupid, who are you going to give that to? Are you going to give it to Chandler? Maybe. Most likely, you're going to give it to Joey because he's the fool. Uh, if you uh, you want somebody to say something spacey or you know or or ditzy, well, maybe maybe Phoebe is the one. You want somebody to have a wisecrack, have a have a sharp observation. That could be uh, Chandler, uh, somebody who's going to. Uh, there's a, a Yiddish term called the schlemiel. Uh, for some reason, Yiddish. Uh, has like 14 different ways of describing, uh, uh, you know, a foolish person. Shlemiel, Shlemazel. The Shlemiel is the person who gets soup poured on his lap. The Shlemazel is the clumsy waiter who pours the soup on the lap. Or maybe it's the other way around. I'm not quite sure. Uh, so who's the Shlemiel in, in Friends? It's it's going to be Ross. So So one of the benefits of archetype is that archetypes are slices of human behavior universal human behavior so that you 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 want to make sure that um that you have s- some of these archetypical characters there to carry the comedy uh i was uh, working on somebody's uh animated film the other day and uh it, it's a you know it's animated film it's you know it's uh for the you know 8 to 12 year old set and there's no, there's no fool in there. And I said, this, you have three characters, all of whom are cranky and, and, and negative. Maybe this character pointing to one of the characters, the younger character, maybe that character be, could be a fool because then you could carry a lot of comedy because fools, do, fools are optimistic. It's what Lisa Kudrow called, um, the unearned optimism of, of an idiot. Uh, they don't know that they're wrong because, and therefore they're able to be wrong in, in a very forceful way. Uh, Kramer in Seinfeld is another example of that. And so, you know, does there need to be a fool in there? Usually, if you want somebody to say something stupid, uh, it's great. It, rather than having funny lines put in the mouths of anybody in your in your narrative, have a character who, when you bring the character on stage, that character is apt to say something foolish, something something stupid, something that might be funny. Uh, you usually need to have some kind of animal character, primal character. John Belushi in Animal House, Melissa McCarthy in everything, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and somebody who you know who has 
uh, primal appetites. Uh, there, there's usually the voice of reason. Uh, in uh, Jay Baruchel has has, has uh, become, you know, has has kind of uh, mastered the voice of reason in several films. He was the voice of reason in Th- Tropic Thunder. He's the only one who read the 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 instructions, the guide. He, he can read a map. He's the voice of reason in um, This Is the End, uh, the apocalyptic comedy in which uh, in which you know the rapture takes place and 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 hellfire breaks out. Uh, there's this great scene between him and Seth Rogen in which uh, Seth Rogen says, I can't have that. It's full of gluten. Jay Baruchel says, what's wrong with gluten? Oh, gluten's horrible. You know, because Seth Rogen doesn't know what he's talking about. It's just what, it's, what he's heard. So you have the voice of reason. Sometimes the voice of reason is a mentor. In, in the classic hero's journey, the mentor is Obi-Wan Kenobi, some, somebody wise. In a comic narrative, you're, the mentor is oftentimes an, an idiot who has some specific knowledge. Uh, in Dodgeball, Rip Torn plays this old <laughs> champion dodgeball player uh, who throws, you know, tools at the players, and he hits Justin Long with a wrench. He says, "If you can, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball," <laughs> which is an idiotic thing yeah. to say, but yet he's he's their mentor. In most comic narratives, you need a trickster. Now, the trickster is somebody who, you know, colors outside the, the box, who doesn't, you know, doesn't follow the rules. The trickster doesn't have to be the protagonist. Mm. But, they're, but I can't think of a, of, a, of a narrative in which a trickster isn't useful. In, mm. in Big, the comedy with Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is an innocent, but his friend who steals his parents' money to allow Tom Hanks to to live in a flop house for 30 days while they're waiting for the magic fortune-telling machine to be located again, he's the trickster because otherwise, how does Tom Hanks, he can't go home, his mother thinks he's a rapist, he can't go to school, they'll think he's... Uh, you know, a child abuser, he, he's got to convince his friend that he's really Josh and that he needs help. So, so Josh is the trickster who helps him out uh, by stealing money from his parents. So you have these archetypical characters and they serve the purpose of moving the story forward simply by, uh, by having separate points of view that you can you can utilize and also because they're the people who have to coalesce around the protagonist uh during connections yeah that makes total sense and again so much to think about there thank you there was um a line of your book, which I underlined because it spoke to a particular pain point of mine at the time. I'm currently working on a YA novel. And what I underlined was, if you have act three problems, they're really act one problems. Yes. I was just, I was just I telling found... somebody that the other day. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so helpful. She, she, uh, this person was telling me that they're working on this novel and, and they can't quite make the ending work. And I said, uh, well, you have the most painful thing that happens to your character that that when you when you described it to me it it hurt me viscerally so that's Mm. powerful 
because I don't know anything about the story, but wow, what a story. And you put it in like, like two thirds or three quarters of the way through the story. And by that time, it's like, okay, why not start the story that way? And that way, or have something similarly horrible happen. So we know why this character goes on the journey. So, so all act three problems are act one problems. Also act two problems are act one problems. You have to, everything you pay, want to pay off, you have to set up in the beginning. Everything, everything that you want to come to fruition has to be seeded in the beginning. Um, now you can write a draft based on an image. Fine. And then maybe the second draft is a, is a refinement of that. And maybe the third draft, uh, you add some funny lines. But at some point, somebody's going to say, what is this movie about? And they're not talking about the plot or the premise. They're talking about the theme. So once you figure out, oh, I know what this movie is about, then you have to go back and seed that stuff in. Because you can't just throw it on, throw it in on page 52 and have it make any sense. In the very, in, near the beginning of Groundhog Day, somebody said, does he, has he never watched any film besides Groundhog Day? I have. I happen to like it. So F you yeah. if you don't like Groundhog Day. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's, it's not bad. It's funny. Uh, they're driving up to Punxsutawney and he says to uh, his producer, Rita, and Chris Elliott, uh, the, the cameraman, he says, somebody, one day somebody's going to see me. Well, Chris Elliott says, what do you have against uh, doing uh, uh, the remote from Punxsutawney, the Groundhog Day? And he says, somebody's going to see me interviewing Groundhog and think I don't have a future. Well, isn't that the film? Now, you're watching yeah. it in the movie theater or uh, you're on, on your phone or wherever. Maybe you've never seen it before and you don't go, aha, that's the theme, but... It resonates. Later on, he meets the uh, insurance guy, the annoying insurance guy. Uh, and uh, and the insurance guy says, uh, you know, uh, a lot of my friends, you know, live by the actuarial tables, but I, I think it's all one big, uh, you know, crapshoot anywho, don't you? Again, theme expressed by characters, not like on the nose. You have to live as though every day's your last day, but that that that's what we're talking about. And you have to seed that in. If you want there to be some big event uh, that ends your movie or near the end of the movie, well, have somebody talk about it near the beginning of the movie. Uh, you know, mm. set that up. When they... Sorry, another Groundhog reference. When they first were working on Groundhog, they ended up with uh, at a wedding because there's these two kids in the diner, the Kleisers who are going to get married. When they went to Punxsutawney to actually research what happens during the Groundhog Day Festival, because um, Ruben wrote the script without ever having gone to the Groundhog Day Festival, they realized that at the end of every Groundhog Day, there's a Groundhog Day dance. And so they changed the screenplay to to end things, you know, near the you know, penultimate end of it at the Groundhog Day dance. So the other thought is steal. 
steal like crazy. Steal from your own life, steal from other people's lives. Uh, invention is overrated. Um, right. Uniqueness is, well, not new uniqueness. What, what, how do I want to say it? Um, the product of your own imagination is overrated. Uh, mm. Avail yourself to what's real, what's true, and put it in your script. That's really good advice. And so many directions I'd love to go with that. Um, one that comes to mind particularly is how you link that to decision points when you're creating, like you're drawing, like you say, from things that are real from you. So you may be able to say, draw from knowledge of settings or draw from emotional experiences that have happened. When you get to something like as big as a decision point, we see them happen in movies so often where we can see the place where they happen and quite a few of the pieces are in place, but it still feels forced. Do you have any advice for people I, for how I, to? I think the, the, the point, a decision point is where the character could logically and, and for all intents and purposes, equally go one way or the other way. Now, in many films, in many narratives, there's really no decision point because hmm. you've set up a false, a false choice. In uh, the, the Woody Allen movie in which Owen Wilson goes, uh, walks around Paris uh, and then goes to the past. I think it's called After Midnight or Until Midnight. I can't remember the name of the movie. But anyway, he's got this horrible, horrible fiance with even worse parents. So, so horrible fiance, horrible in-laws. And then he meets these wonderful people this wonderful woman in, in uh, 1920s Paris. And we're thinking, oh, yeah, well, he's probably going to go with the horrible fiancé, the shrieking, horrible fiancé and her terrible uh, parents. No, there's no way he's yeah. going to do that. So it's a, yeah. it's a false decision point. Uh, a better example of a decision point is when in Dodgeball, it looks like uh, Vince Vaughn's going to lose, Ben Stiller wants to bribe him. And yeah, ben, you know, Vince Vaughn, has, has, his character is kind of, um, uh, he's not that uh, committed and he's kind of lazy and, and he's kind of selfish. So yeah, maybe he will take that bribe. Maybe he will leave his dodgeball team up in the lurch. I could, I could believe, you know, I think it's not going to happen because it's a Hollywood movie, but maybe. Um, it, at least it doesn't ring false to me. In um, in uh, the uh, Tom Hanks movie, um, Meg Ryan, Empire State Building, help me out. Mm. Is it? No, I'm, I'm going to mess up now. Sleepless in Seattle? Yes, of course, Sleepless Not in Seattle. Yes, okay. Okay, thank you. I, was I, got, I kept on thinking, well, you have mail? No, that's not the right one. Uh, in, yeah, no, oh, that was going there yeah, too. I in, feel sleepless it. in Seattle, she has the bad boyfriend, but he's not really that bad. You know, Bill Pullman, he's got allergies. That's, that's a strike against him. You can't marry a guy who's got nasal problems. However... There's this scene just before the climax in which Bill Pullman just says, 
I don't want to be anybody's second choice. Marriage is too hard to be anybody's second choice. And he's so nice. He's so great. I'd go with Bill Pullman. He's a great guy. He's just not the guy. And so there's a real decision point that Meg Ryan has to choose. It's like, not, you know, rather than having the bad boyfriend, there's a bad boyfriend in Wedding Crashers. Uh, Owen Wilson uh, meets the girls, the daughter of a senator, who's got this bad boyfriend. You know, um, and uh, and he's, he's, he like is violent during the touch football game. And you're going, there's no way she's going to end up with this guy. And if she does, I, I don't even like her that much anymore. Why is she with this asshole? Uh, so, so you want there to be, you want the stack to be evenly dealt. Uh, that, that when you set up the circumstances in the narrative, don't make for a false choice in which, of course, you're going to go this way as opposed to that way. Give us two equally, comp- equally valid competing choices so that while the protagonist is going which way, we're going, hmm, which way? As opposed to, okay, let me just wait. I know you're going to not go with that guy. I know you're going to go this guy because it's a Hollywood movie. So, and, and equally as important as, as decision points is the discovered goal. And this mm. is something else that, that people make a mistake on because they've read all the screenwriting books and the screenwriting books say that you're your protagonist has a goal in the beginning, and that's the through line. But in a comedy, your protagonists are broken, desperately flawed people. So the goal that they have in the beginning is also broken and and flawed. And it's through the transformative elements of the of the premise, of the narrative, that they change. And because they change, they start to want different things. And that's called the discovered goal. And the discovered goal happens not because you turn around and go, oh, I want to marry that girl. The discovered goal comes about because your character has transformed through the the process of this experience. They can't help but transform. And so because they transform, they want different things. And, And that's in almost every comedy I can think of, your character wants something different than they wanted in the beginning. Yeah. Again, such a good reminder. There's so many things in your book I've underlined and written on post-it notes. Which book do you mean? Top of you pages. mean this book? The Hidden Tools that of book, Comedy? That book, yeah. Or, or, the Hidden Tools of Comedy or and book? also The Comic Hero's Journey. Comic Hero's Both Journey? of them. Snap. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on a third book about television right now. Um, Are you? It's going slowly, but... Um, 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 I'm, I'm, it's stymied me for a long time, but I'm, I'm, I'm inching my way towards there to, uh, maybe the comic hero's journey watches TV. I don't know what the title is going to be. Mm. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I have so many questions about that. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I have, I'm curious, but I don't want to take more of your time. Like how you think about it when it's like a series arc, like the bear versus a film. So many questions. I'm going to have to definitely read your next book in terms of how that works, pacing, ending, all the things I want to know, character development. So amazing. So um, thank you so much. You've shared so many really helpful craft-based things. You've been a great interviewer. You've asked great questions. And you you. have such a lovely painting behind you. Did you (laughs) you paint that? No, I didn't. 
No, I did not. No, pay whoever that. did it no, did a very but... nice job. It's kind of also oh, well, autumn colors. How nice. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I've just got one quick question before we wrap up and also then find where to go to uh, see more of your work, which is just, just, I'm really curious. And the reason that I'm asking this is because um, quite often with comedy, I love it with a passion, but I don't laugh out loud at that many things. I think it fulfills other different things in me and I'm still super interested and I need it as a lens to look through. So I'm just really curious um, with you because you've seen so many things and you analyze so many things, whether you still have that like literal physical laugh response oh, to shows yeah. that you're watching currently. Oh, a, you do. A big laugh response. Yeah. Because, yeah. because you know, there's, just knowing stuff doesn't make you immune from from a reaction. I mean, uh, no. when I watch a bad comedy or when I watch a flawed comedy, then I'm analyzing. I'm going, why am I not liking this? What's wrong? What what mistake have they made? How would I have um, how would I have done it differently or, or 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 advise somebody to do it differently? But when I'm watching something um, fresh and original and alive, uh, I laugh and I cry. And and I cheer, mm. I cheer. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, the 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 guys in the bear, you know, who get their fire suppression license, yay! Because I got so involved with. Why can't they yeah. get this license? Yeah, yeah, I definitely cheer too. Great show, thank you. And thank you so much for your time today. You've been so generous. For people who want to find out more about you and your work, where's the best places that they can find you? And I will, of course, put these in the show notes too. Uh, they can find me on the web. My website is kaplancomedy.com, Kaplan with a K. Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, even though it's even though it's now kind of a hellscape, but I'm still there. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, hope, hopefully it will be less of a hellscape in the future. Uh, at, at, at SK Comedy and uh, you can find me on Facebook at Kaplan Comedy. Wonderful. So I highly encourage you all oh, and to, also, if you haven't already. Also, if you're yeah. interested, we, we have uh, online courses. Uh, we used to mm. travel around before the pandemic, but then there was this COVID thing. Uh, so we're doing a lot of, a lot of online courses now. And that, that way, uh, people from India and London and uh, Arizona can all take the same course. So we have an online course that's uh, called the Comedy Intensive Online that's based on the first book. And then we have, of course, Write Your Comic Screenplay, which is based on this, based a large part on the second book. And those are all going to be given in the fall. And all that information is going to be available on our website. Perfect. That sounds like a lot of fun. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thank you.